Welcome to this weekly audio digest edition of The National from Monday the 25th of November until Friday the 29th of November 2019 read by volunteers at Secure Review Print Speaking to the Blind at our Bishopbrick studio. The headline Profile Nancy Astor, the first woman in the Commons. Orbital announces ACMC will develop O2 tidal turbine blades. Women will not tolerate disrespect from Johnson. Blast Festival to raise funds for refugees with help from St Andrew. Scottish women in sports study could be key in bid for gender equality. Whiskey with Andy Bell. Hold politicians responsible? We can't, and that's why the UK is done. The story of how Scotland's Tories came to be unionists. Constitutional education is needed so we are not hoodwinked by our leaders. Q and Review Print Speaking to the Blind are a charity based in Bishop Briggs. We're currently looking to recruit volunteer access to audio ambassadors in Eastern Bartonshire to place leaflets and business cards at businesses, shops and amenities in the area and to show the public how to listen to daily and weekly online articles from the Herald Scotland, Evening Times, The National and Inside Soap magazine for free. If you would like to volunteer and become an access to audio ambassador, please contact Michael Rankin on 0141 772 3976 or email aaatl at qandreview.com. That's aaatl at qandreview.com. In addition, we are also recruiting for volunteer readers and technicians. If you're interested in reading or technically supporting a recording team, please contact us on 0141 772 3976 or email information at qandreview.com. Details of all of our volunteering opportunities are available on our website at qandreview.com. Thank you. Now, back to the main programme. An article from The National, recorded on Thursday the 28th of November 2019. Profile. Nancy Astor, the first woman in the Commons, by Martin Hannan, journalist. It was 100 years ago today that a by-election in the constituency of Plymouth Sutton saw the election of the first woman to take her seat in Parliament. Nancy Astor made the historic breakthrough by winning the seat vacated by her husband, Waldorf Astor, when he succeeded his father to become the second Viscount Astor. There are celebrations to mark her smashing the glass ceiling, but as we shall see, the pioneer somewhat blotted her copybook in later life. The Representation of the People Act in 1918 had given the vote to women of age 30 and over, but the courts, yes, they got involved in political matters even back then, decided the new law did not allow women to stand for Parliament. With the suffragette movement crying foul, the coalition government of David Lloyd George swiftly brought in a new law, the Parliament Qualification of Women Act 1918. It remains the shortest law in the statute book at 27 words. A woman shall not be disqualified by sex or marriage for being elected to or sitting or voting as a member of the Commons House of Parliament. The first woman elected to the House of Commons was Countess Constance Markovitz, who won the Dublin St Patrick's constituency in the general election of December 1918, but with other Sinn Féin MPs, she refused to take her seat. That left the way open for Nancy Astor to become the first woman to sit in either House in Parliament, Women were banned from the House of Lords until the Life Peerages Act of 1958. The UK government at the time was a coalition of Lloyd George's coalition Liberals, as opposed to the Liberals, and the Conservatives, led by Andrew Bonner Law, 
MP for Glasgow Central. When her father-in-law died in October 1918, Nancy and the new Viscount Astor came up with a plan to have her stand as his replacement. It was Nancy who had encouraged Waldorf Astor to enter politics in the first place and he was a public figure as owner of the Observer newspaper. In 1919, the suffragettes had changed the status of women and the wartime work of millions of women had encouraged a change in society's attitude to women attempting to enter male-dominated parts of life, such as politics. Standing as a unionist on November 28, 1919, Nancy wiped the floor with the opposition, winning by a landslide despite the attitude of some electors to her pro-temperance reviews and the fact that she was both American and divorced. Her witty answers to hecklers at hustings were well reported and her victory was no surprise. On December 1st, after a triumphant train journey to London where she was met by a crowd of women who duly escorted her to Parliament, Nancy Astor took her seat in the House of Commons. Dr Jackie Turner, historical advisor from the University of Reading, who is leading the Astor 100 programme of activities to mark the centenary, said... The election of Nancy Astor changed British democracy forever. For the first time, a woman was able to directly influence the parliamentary debate and the writing of the laws of her own land, a responsibility she willingly shouldered for all women. Astor was born Nancy Witcher Langhorne in Danville, Virginia on May 19, 1879. At one time, the family were quite poor, but her father built up a business that made them relatively wealthy. She had three brothers and four sisters who all survived childhood and the five girls were noted for their good looks. After attending finishing school in New York, at 18 Nancy married a society figure, Robert Gould Shaw II, but almost left him on their honeymoon as he was an abusive drunk. They stayed together long enough for Nancy to have a son, imaginatively named Robert Gould Shaw III, before she divorced her husband in 1903. She toured Britain shortly afterwards and decided to stay, meeting and marrying Walford Astor. They became society hosts and moved in political circles, with Nancy agreeing with, although not actively participating in, the suffragette movement. As Britain's first active woman MP, she advocated greater rights for women and also campaigned for prison reform and age limits on alcohol sale. She never achieved high office but became famous for her wit in dealing with men in the Commons, although Boris Johnson, no less, has cast doubt on whether she made all the witticisms she directed at his hero, Winston Churchill. Churchill apparently told her that having a woman in Parliament was like having one intrude on him in the bathroom, to which Astor retorted, Sir, you are not handsome enough to have such fears. Churchill got his own back. She apparently told him that if he, she was his wife, she would poison his tea, to which she replied, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. She definitely did say, I married beneath me, all women do. Her other aphorisms include the main dangers in this life for the people who want to change everything or nothing. And pioneers may be picturesque figures, but they are often rather lonely ones. Nancy Astor was at various times quite anti-Semitic, racist and anti-Catholic. She denied that her Clevedon set, named after her country home, was quasi-fascist in its collective views, but her friend Lord Lothian was one of the leading pro-appeasement figures in the 1930s. She lived until 1964, dying at the age of 84. A statue of her will be unveiled on Plymouth Hall later today by former Prime Minister Theresa May.
That was a profile by Martin Hannan, journalist. An article from The National, recorded on Thursday the 28th of November 2019. Orbital announces ACMC will develop O2 tidal turbine blades by Tom Jarvis. The world's leading developer of floating tidal stream turbines has awarded the Composite Blades contract for the company's first commercial O2 tidal turbine to AC Marine and Composites, ACMC. Orbital Marine Power Limited, Orbital, signed ACMC to build 10 metres composite blades for both of the O2's twin rotors, four blades in total, giving the machine a swept area of over 600 square metres, the largest ever on a tidal turbine. The O2, capable of generating over 2 megawatts from tidal stream resources, will become the world's most powerful tidal turbine when it enters operation later next year as part of a long-term project at the European Marine Energy Centre, Orkney. Improvements in Orbital's platform design have allowed for a rotor diameter increase of 4 metres on the company's previous record-breaking 2 megawatt SR2000 turbine, with the O2 capable of producing electricity for over 1,700 UK homes. Andrew Scott, Orbital's Chief Executive Officer, said, Gosport's AC Marine and Composites have an impressive track record in delivering high-quality composite solutions to a range of sectors including marine energy. We are delighted that they are supporting the commercialisation of our technology through the O2 project. We believe this contract demonstrates the strong potential for the UK's advanced materials sector to supply high-value components to the emerging global tidal stream market. Alex Newton, director, ACMC, said, We are extremely proud to have been awarded this contract by Orbital Marine, so becoming part of the wider UK supply chain for the O2 project. Our structured production philosophy and in-house resin infusion technology will no doubt add value to this commercial tidal stream project. This is also a great opportunity for ACMC to work on a project that will have a positive impact on the environment whilst reaffirming the UK's commitment to renewables. Orbital's contract with ACMC follows recent contract awards as part of the overall build programme for the O2. These include the O2 platform manufacturing contract to Texo Group in Dundee and an anchors contract to Fawn Trackway in Anglesey. That was an article by Tom Jarvis. The National, recorded on Thursday the 28th of November 2019. Ruth Wishart, Women Will Not Tolerate Disrespect from Johnson, by Ruth Wishart. She was elected to Parliament to represent North Lanark, not perhaps an area of Scotland notorious for its commitment to equality of female opportunity. At 24, Jenny Lee became the newest and youngest member at Westminster, representing the Independent Labour Party while too young to vote for herself. It was 1929 when the franchise was only extended to women over 30 or those with property. This, then, is the centenary of her storming the almost all-male bastions of the House of Commons and the 50th anniversary of arguably her greatest achievement, persuading Harold Wilson to launch the Open University. 
I've been retracing some of Lee's journey in Fife for a radio tribute to a woman who was never merely known as Mrs Nye Bevan, although their marriage provided the Labour Party, which she later joined, with one of the greatest political power couples. And pondering along the way how the daughter and granddaughter of miners managed to defy every social norm of her day. She hailed from Loch Gelly, home of the notorious Taws, where her childhood was far from typical. Most local families were large, in stark contrast to the wage packet from which they were to be fed and clothed. But Jenny's mother and father, having lost two boys in infancy, went on to just have just two more, herself and a younger brother. And it was Jenny who was the dominant sibling, a voracious reader, a voluble taker-up of causes, and a girl determined not to follow most of her peers into teenage employment. She had sat at the feet of some of the legendary ILP pioneers as a child and imbibed her gospel at the Socialist Sunday School and the doctrines as preached by her father whom she adored. Her journey through Beath High School to Edinburgh University was facilitated by funding from Fife Council and the Carnegie Trust and by doting parents keen to indulge the ambitions of their precocious youngest child. Mum made food hampers supplemented by the local community, with which Dad cycled to Edinburgh taking back home to his daughter's laundry. Unlike most local girls, she was a stranger to housework or any domestic chores and probably wanted to keep it that way. Her biographer, Patricia Hollis, notes that in every way that mattered, Jenny was brought up as the oldest son, which speaks volumes for the accepted pecking order. Lee mixed a natural talent for oratory with a keen sense of social justice and was temperamentally not given to suffering fools or would-be obstructors gladly. If Jenny tore a strip off you, you stay telt. For all that, she never lost the pull of her roots or her class, which she dubbed upper working. The 1926 strike propelled her home to Fife and to serve in soup kitchens and help with fundraising tours for the miners. Her marriage to Nye took her out of frontline politics for a while, but she became the Labour MP for Cannock in 1945. Twenty years later, this formidable, feisty Pfeiffer was in Harold Wilson's cabinet, launching the first ever national arts strategy and persuading him of the merits of a university of the air, open to all, regardless of background or qualifications. Yet talking to those who cherish her memory and keep the flame alive, it's clear there were unexpected contradictions in her life's work. She wouldn't have described herself as a feminist, it seems, having a touching faith in an improvement in the human condition, being sure to benefit women ultimately. Hmm. And of course she went to the Lords after losing her seat in 1970. Asked if she had any qualms about becoming a baroness, she shot back, Of course not, they have a fabulous library. Few of the 1,120 women standing for Westminster next month will know too much about Jenny or many of the, the other women who battled their way through the glass ceiling in previous generations. But they might reflect that in representing just one third of the candidates this time around, the suspicion is that the trend to have Parliament Johnny more accurate accurately reflecting this year's society at large is going in the wrong direction. And even the raw statistics tell we'll less than the whole story, since being selected in a hopeless seat is no more than tokenism. 
Holyrood has begun length of the Parliament 37% female, half the Labour intake female and almost 43% of the SNP slipped dismally back. Neither are its inner workers helped by a male-dominated corporate body too often reflected on its committees as well. Yet given the dismal images of the last few months and the raft of female MPs throwing in the towel in the wake of sustained social media onslaughts and general misogyny, it's not a culture in which it's easy to persuade women to put themselves in the election firing line. There is a subtext here when women of colour have a particularly grim ordeal via their Twitter feeds. This is not to say that male MPs are immune from effects of physical violence or having their premises dogged with unsavoury slogans, but it's rare for them to face threats of Outlined and raise some funds for detail. the organisation which supports Women who become MPs are not simply snowflakes, but a relentless a diet of insult and disparagement inevitably has a cumulative effect on the psyche. The Neither is it helpful when you have a Prime Minister who Barry takes a cavalier and contemptuous attitude towards the beautiful St Andrew's Cathedral in the Highland capital. If Boris Johnson finds himself returned to town Downing Street next Choir, month, he might care to take a very hard look in the mirror and contemplate whether a man with a reputation for both serial philandering and treating women as disposable window dressing is really day. the kind of Prime Minister the country the deserves. Of Nairn will be treated to a Otherwise, he had better take a Glen care Finn before attempting any more dismissive at the quippery. The girly swats are on the march. And Gary Innes, they're mad as hell, and they're not going to take it anymore. Will be providing the, the tunes Jenny Lee and was on BBC Radio along Scotland with his band, on the 26th Kim of Carney, Ryan Murphy, Ali Hutton was an article and by Rory Matheson at Shieldbridge Village Hall Akarko at 7.30pm. For those who enjoy a modern take on traditional Scottish music, Neo Trad Trio Project Smock will be entertaining at Strathy Village Hall and will be joined by the next generation of young musicians from Fayair and Or. At Ben Nevis Distillery, Fort William, Joe MacDonald, Rachel Walker and Ewan Henderson will take a light-hearted look at Gaelic song. Goal no God. This year's Blast Commission will include some of the most beautiful Gaelic songs of love or loss, accompanied by interesting stories and introductions by MacDonald. Finally, at the Arras Centre, Portree, in partnership with Urus and Elaine, there will be a concert with some of Gaeldom's finest musicians and singers, including Dr Angus MacDonald, Kathleen McInnes, Christine Primrose, Alistair White, Stuart Jackson, Vary Hall, Alan Henderson and some young FES participants. The full programme of events can be found at www.blas-festival.com along with details of how to purchase tickets. That was an article by Johnny Jobson. The National, recorded on Thursday the 28th of November 2019. Scottish women in sports study could be key in bid for gender equality, by Maureen McGonagall, sports columnist. Major sports bodies guilty of shocking lack of women's representation at board level, was a headline I disappointingly came across recently. It related to a report on a major investigation by a national newspaper into gender diversity on international sports federations. Unsurprisingly, it revealed women continue to be gravely underrepresented at the executive level in many sports. Looking in depth at 10 federations, it found women made up less than 40% of their boards, while only three had at least 25% female representation and not one board is led by a woman. 
The troubling thing is that these statistics will more than likely be a reflection on the wider sporting landscape and the continuing lack of diversity assists senior level in all sports. This is something Scottish Women in Sport has been discussing for some time now, and our intention to create an inclusion report with baseline figures in Scottish sport is still at the forefront of our ambition. We feel that understanding the depth of the problem and putting down a marker will enable us to look at solutions and monitor change. It is clearly understood that there are many different factors which contribute to the lack of diversity on boards and there is not a one-size-fits-all solution, but if we don't know the level of the problem, how can we begin to find a solution? The first step for SWS in this campaign is to work with a like-minded corporate body that will invest in the research. It is important that the findings not only set the benchmark, but give guidance on how to improve the situation. There is no doubt that sport will not hit the 50-50 by 2020 target, which was a challenge the First Minister aired back in 2015 for public, private and third sector boards. We need change and modern, diverse and innovative leaders in sport, and I believe that our proposed research and its findings could be the next step into helping achieve that. That was an article by Maureen McGonigal, sports columnist. An article from The National, recorded on Thursday the 28th of November 2019. Whiskey with Andy Bell, by Pete Stewart. In Scotland, we have never needed an excuse to celebrate or start a party. Every occasion is the perfect time to raise a glass or three. From christenings to weddings to funerals, we know how to have a good time. Hogmanay and Burns Night have a dedicated following, but what about St Andrew's Day? I feel that 30th of November does not get the celebration it deserves, so I'm suggesting it's time we take the reins and start celebrating Scotland. From the freshest of food to our amazing libations, we have an embarrassment of riches. To celebrate, may I suggest three relatively new distillers located just a few miles from the seaside town of St Andrews. See what I did there? To the north you have Eden Mill. Opening in 2014, this distillery and brewery do it all, making whiskey, gin and beer. They produce such a small amount of whiskey that the current release is already sold out, but luckily you can still get hold of the gin and beer while waiting for the next release. The Eden Mill original gin 29 pounds 95 Royal Mile Whiskies is a classically styled gin. It has the perfect balance between lemon and lime citrus notes. They also use sea buckthorn berries in the recipe, so this is a guilt-free super fruit beverage. To the south, you have Kingsbarn Distillery, which was also established in 2014. The Weems family has transformed a historic semi-derelict farmsteading into a modern distillery, producing an amazing whisky. The Kingsbarn Dream, to Dram Single Malt, £34.99, in variety one-to-one, is youthful and full of fresh fruit delights. In the glass, you'll find pineapple notes with caramel, stone fruits and milk chocolate. And to the west, you have Daft Mill, Established in 2005, this is a true farm distillery. All the barley is grown on site, all the water is from the local burn, and they only produce whiskey for four months of the year. 
To try this whisky, you'll have to search it down at your local specialist whisky bar, but it's worth the effort. It's a sweeter style and a lifted malt depending on the release. Also worth noting that people called Andrew are always intelligent, dashing and very modest. That was an article by Pete Stewart. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk and remember, when setting up the player, ask for the Cune Review channels. Now, back to the main programme. The National, recorded on Thursday the 28th of November 2019. Hold politicians responsible? We can't, and that's why the UK is done. By Michael Fry, columnist. Regular readers might be expecting me to comment in this week's column on the launch of the Tory manifesto, which took place on Sunday, but I'm not going to bother. The reason is the same as I gave in last week's column, on the subject not just of specific manifestos, but of politicians' attitudes in general at this crux in the country's affairs. To hell with their blather and bilge. Referring then to the various campaigns, Tory and other, which had already become absurd enough in their statistical delusions, I said... Not that it really matters because, in the cold light of the dawn after polling day, nobody will care a damn about promises, least of all the politicians who made them. By now the promises have turned even crazier and there is still more than a fortnight to go till the polls open. The basic fact remains that a plummeting pound and increasing interest rates will define 2020 for most of us. My comments on the coming tumble seem to be merely commonplace, but they put reader Rachel Wentworth in high dudgeon. She wrote in with this counterblast. You might not, Fry, but I intend to hold my representatives in both Holyrood and Westminster responsible for those promises. It would be interesting to learn what precise significance Rachel attaches to the phrase hold responsible. Does it mean if the promises are not kept, she will vote against her representatives next time around, in five years for Westminster and three years for Holyrood, she being one among millions of voters? Deadums. Or will she go on question time and put forward an awkward point which they will ignore while they recite their rehearsed lines? Good luck with that one. Wow, the entire political class must be trembling in their wee cotton socks while they wait with dread for Rachel to hold them responsible. I wrote that last column in the same ideological context as I will write all my columns on the view that the modern UK is an elective dictatorship which we dignify by the name of the absolute sovereignty of Parliament. We use this term in order to underline its unbroken history, as over the centuries the absolutism of the monarch was gradually devolved so as to become embodied in representative institutions. The absolutism did not change, however, only its embodiment. In this respect, the UK is radically different from most other modern states, resting on constitutions with rights for the citizens, which these can then legally uphold and defend. We cannot. And I believe the UK is unreformable. That's why I want out, along the pathway of an independent Scotland. My convictions are fortified by the political situation at this moment. 
Boris Johnson evidently believes in absolute sovereignty, but not in the legislative way that prevailed from the middle of the 19th century to the beginning of the 21st century. No, he believes in the absolutism of an executive which does not shrink from acting outside law and precedent, resting only on the parliamentary majority, however slim, he is now trying to win. If he succeeds, not even the House of Commons will be able to hold him responsible, let alone the voters. Sorry about that, Rachel. We have enjoyed a foretaste of all this in Boris's attempt at the prorogation of Parliament. The UK today has a Supreme Court to which we can take appeals against constitutional wrongs and it was the Supreme Court, not Parliament itself, that in this case gave us redress. Let's not forget the major part of the Court of Session also played in Edinburgh, but the Court in London was the one that went on TV and proved a joy to watch. I will always remember the President of the Court, Lady Brenda Hale, a figure like a little songbird who with gleeful and sprightly precision picked apart Boris's power grab. Now she's going to the judiciary of Hong Kong and I hope she can do something to help its brave and free people in their struggle against oppressive socialism. But today I want to concentrate on another retired Justice of the Supreme Court, Lord Jonathan Sumption, once described in the Spin Doctor's diaries of Alistair Campbell as having a brain the size of a planet. Sumption this year gave the wreath lectures. He started off with characteristic crystal clarity. My subject in these lectures is the place of law in public life. The twin themes that I want to explore are the decline of politics and the rise of law to fill the void. Hard to think of anything more timely. Now the lectures have been published under the title Trials of the State. The book is hard going but rewarding. You can get a taste of it on BBC iPlayer from Mark Darcy's programme Book Talk. I watched in wonder as the points put forward by Mr Darcy, who is no fool, were sliced up and placed smack dab in the hierarchy of Sumption's thinking. His lordship defined himself as a Tory who sometimes votes Labour, but I found him more like a Victorian liberal, on the pattern of John Stuart Mill, that heir to but destroyer of the Scottish common sense philosophy. Sumption, too, leads his readers persuasively to positions which, when they stop to think, they might not find comfortable. It is worth recalling that the first book Sumption ever published in 1979 was co-authored by Sir Keith Joseph and called Equality. It was one of the key texts in the breaking of the post-war leftist consensus in UK politics. It argued, what I have continued to argue in this column, that equality is an impossible, impossible social ideal, beyond some basics such as political rights to vote and so on, and legal rights to be treated impartially in the courts. I have called out my critics to say exactly what else they might mean by equality in, say, the Scottish labour market, but I've never got an answer. Any reader of this column is warmly invited to offer one. Meanwhile, I'm entitled to regard equality as merely a mantra to be mumbled by politicians at Holyrood and elsewhere, too idle to work out what they mean by it, on the same pattern as Boris Johnson, in fact. To take a more difficult example from Joseph and Sumption, they contended that a fundamental error of egalitarianism was to maintain that class had anything to do with material wealth. Class distinctions are cultural rather than economic, they wrote. They exist precisely because money is not highly enough regarded to perform the function of differentiating between men. In turn, this explained why class was a weak phenomenon in rootless materialist societies like the United States and West Germany. By contrast, class was stronger in traditional societies like England and France, where money is not the universal measure of an individual's value. 
We can surely say the same of Scotland too. I cite this challenging book to remind us that even when politics is at its most squalid and trashy, like now, there are still deep forces at work in our society, sure to produce results for a future real world that will need to confront and ponder them. And there are also heroes of our democracy, whose thinking remains fearless even at the price of popularity. The deep decay of the UK system makes me all the more certain that before long Scotland will become an independent nation. One of the first things that citizens will have to do is vote themselves a constitution, which I hope will be as distant as possible from the present absolutist model, with a separation of powers and checks and balances among them. I don't suppose it will make politicians' behaviour improve, but at least holding them responsible will then become a feasible aim. An article by Michael Fry, columnist. An article from The National, recorded on the 28th of November 2019. The story of how Scotland's Tories came to be unionists, by Hamish McPherson, journalist. Having looked in previous columns at the history of the Scottish National Party and various aspects of the Labour Party's history in Scotland, it seems only right to dwell upon the history of the Scottish Conservatives. Before I do, I just have to comment on Richard Leonard and his claim that the current Scottish Labour Party's manifesto invokes the spirit of Red Clydeside. Fair enough, there is actually some socialism in the manifesto, but the Red Clydesiders also believed in home rule. Maxton, Kirkwood and Wheatley will be burling in their graves. We know the stance of the current Scottish Conservatives about a second referendum. Refusing to even countenance one is their only real policy, and on December the 12th we will see how that stance plays out, especially with their biggest electoral asset having now confirmed she is heading out the Holyrood door. With the Conservative governments of Theresa May and Boris Johnson both using Brexit to attack the devolution settlement, it is worth looking back at the history of conservatism in Scotland, and the first thing that strikes any researcher is the fact that for a long time the word conservative did not appear in the name of the party. Not only that, but in their decades as the Unionist Party, there was a strong streak of what would be seen by some modern sepphologists as quasi-nationalism, never better expressed than by the 39 Steps novelist and Unionist MP John Buchan. Every Scotsman should be a Scottish nationalist. He said that in the House of Commons in 1932, adding, if it could be proved that a Scottish Parliament were desirable, Scotsmen should support it. So how could a high Tory, later Baron Tweedsmore, the Governor-General of Canada, be a Unionist and yet clearly support a form of Home Rule? The answer lies in the antecedents of the Scottish Unionist Party, which was how the organised Tories called themselves from 1912 to 1965. Modern politics as we know it began in the Victorian era, with political parties as such not really a feature of Scottish political life prior to that. In the Scottish Parliament prior to the Act of Union, there had been parties, but in fact they were loose amalgamations usually wielded together by one faction or another or to promote a particular cause. The Tory party in Westminster formed around 1812, but broke up over various issues and the Whigs remained dominant, 
bringing in the Reform Act of 1832, which widened the electorate. The Act was to prove transformational, and when Robert Peel issued his famous Tamworth Manifesto in 1834, it is widely regarded as the foundation document of modern conservatism. A formal organisation began to emerge. The name Conservative was adopted by Peel's party, and that is why the Conservative Party is recognised as the oldest political party in Britain. In 1846, the Conservatives split over the issue of the Corn Laws, and the followers of Peel broke away to join the Whigs in the new Liberal Party. In Scotland, the name Tory had been given to the Jacobite followers of the Stuarts and those who had opposed the Act of Union, but the Whigs, who came to dominate 19th century politics in Scotland, became the Liberals. With William Ewart Gladstone as their leader for decades, the Liberals held power until the issue of Irish Home Rule divided them. In 1867, the Scottish National Constitutional Association was formed with Conservative leader Benjamin Disraeli as its patron, and in the 1874 election he swept into power, with a surge in Conservative seats in Scotland helping the transformation. It was the first outright Conservative government in 33 years. By 1882, with ever greater increase in adult suffrage, political associations began to form across the UK and Ireland, and the National Union of Conservative Associations of Scotland came into being in that year. Just four years later, the Liberals finally collapsed over Irish Home Rule, and the anti-Gladstone faction, the Liberal Unionists, split away. Liberal Unionism stood for the Union, the Empire and Protestant Ascendancy and was popular in Scotland. The Conservatives and the Liberal Unionists were fighting for the same voters, however, and the emergence of the Labour Party squeezed that vote even more. There had only ever been one Scottish Prime Minister who was recognisably a Tory, namely John Stuart, the third Earl of Bute, back in the 1760s, but in 1902, a Scottish Conservative entered number 10. Arthur Balfour was born in East Lothian but represented English constituencies, joining his uncle, Lord Salisbury's government, before succeeding him as PM. He would later go on to make the famous Balfour Declaration about a homeland for the Jewish people. At UK level, the Liberal Unionist and Conservative parties amalgamated in 1912 under the name the Conservative and Unionist Party, but at that time the Scottish Tories imposed their own piece of devolution. It was thought by them at the time that the word Conservative was divisive and unappealing, and they also wanted to show that defending the Union was their first concern, so the Scottish Unionist Party came into being. Their policies were centre-right, and the Unionists took the Conservative whip in Parliament, but by leaving out the word Conservative from their title, they appealed to a broader representation. It should be noted that in various parts of England, some Conservative associations also retained the name Unionist. I also wish to make it clear that the latest Scottish Unionist Party, a minor group of British nationalists, has nothing whatsoever to do with the original Unionist Party. 
The merger achieved two things. It made the Unionists the dominant force in Scottish politics for the next 40 years, and it eventually made Scotland a two-party state as the Liberal vote eroded. The low point of the Scottish Unionist Party was probably the defection of former members to create the Scottish Party, which eventually joined with the National Party of Scotland to form the Scottish National Party. The high point came in 1955, when they won more than 50% of the popular vote, the only time this has happened in post-war Scotland. The SNP came very close in 2015, and who knows what may happen on December 12th. So how did the Unionists do so well? Murdo Fraser, MSP, has written a reasonably accurate and quite readable account of the history of the Scottish Tories, which can be found on their website. I would have given Fraser much more credence had he mentioned the name Margaret Thatcher. Any history of the Scottish Tories that omits her has to be suspicious. I think he is right, however, in his analysis of the Unionist popularity. He writes... Crucial to this unionist success was a policy of what the writer David Torrance describes as nationalist unionism. The Scottish unionist MPs in the House of Commons might sit with the English and Welsh Conservatives, but it was accepted that they preserved a distinct identity. The Scotsman reported in 1947 that these unionist MPs were seen as standing up for Scotland and busy in the assertion of Scottish rights and viewpoints. Fraser, al Fraser also gets it right about the Unionists' appeal to the centre ground of Scottish politics. Unionist political success was not just built on being seen to stand up for Scottish interests. A second element was the pursuit of an avowedly centrist political platform, explicitly advocating a middle road between two extremes, the extremes of laissez-faire and socialism, as the party's 1955 East of Scotland yearbook put it. It was the liberal unionist tradition, rather than the Tory one, which influenced this moderate stance. The premiership of Sir Alec Douglas Home in 1963-64 was the second and last time a Scottish Tory held the top job, and he did so while a unionist. By then, Labour was beginning its surge to become the leading party in Scotland and the Unionists lost seats in three successive elections so that by 1966 they'd gone from a high of 36 Scottish seats in 1955 to just 20 in 1966. Douglas Home's successor as Tory leader, Edward Heath, used his personal leadership to persuade the Scottish Unionist Party to change its name to the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party in 1965, and he also determined to challenge the rise of the SNP following Winnie Ewing's by-election victory at Hamilton in 1967. It's often forgotten that the first of the two major parties in the UK to actually plan for devolution was the Conservative Party. In May 18, 1968, Heath came to the Scottish Party's conference at Perth and made his famous declaration that the Tories would commit to a Scottish Assembly. Apparently, he did not bother to consult too many of the Scottish senior members, but he followed through in his promise, setting up a constitutional committee under Douglas Home, which by 1970 had proposed a 125-member Assembly sitting in Edinburgh. 
The Conservative victory that year saw the plan put on the backburners and the Tories paid the price for inaction in 1974 when the second election of that year saw their share of the vote decline to under 25% and the number of seats fell to 16. Then came Thatcher and the extraordinary situation in which Scotland was led by a Prime Minister who clearly did not understand this nation's people, including the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party. Its leaders, such as George Younger, Ian Lang and Michael Forsyth, were seen as Governor-Generals who aided and abetted Thatcher in her policies. Don't forget the poll tax was imposed on Scotland a year earlier than England as an experiment, with Scots as the guinea pigs. Given the record of Thatcher and Major, it was nevertheless still a surprise when the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party lost all its seats in the 1997 general election. In the space of 42 years, the Tories had declined from being by far the biggest party in Scotland to a nadir of zero seats in Westminster. They would have only one MP in the following four general elections. Ironically, it was the advent of the Scottish Parliament which allowed the Conservatives to regroup, with leaders like Annabel Goldie. According to Murdo Fraser, there has been a reason for their revival, and it wasn't just Ruth Davidson. He wrote last year, Today, there is much in liberal unionist tradition which influences Scottish Conservative thinking. Already the party takes distinct policy positions from those of our colleagues down south, for example on free funding for personal care for the elderly or on free prescriptions. On other issues such as Europe or on immigration, the Scottish Conservatives tend to adopt a more liberal tone than some of our English counterparts. What a pity, Murdo, that history catches up with you at times. The row over Brexit and the arrival of Boris Johnson has split the Scottish Tories asunder and threatens to send them back to their dreadful days of 1997. It's what happens when you forget to stand up for Scotland. And that article was by Hamish McPherson, journalist. The National, recorded on the 28th of November 2019. Constitutional education is needed so we are not hoodwinked by our leaders, by Dr Elliot Bulmer. This week I spent most of my time at the back of a conference room in a hotel in Mon State, Myanmar, under the shadow of the old Mulmain Pagoda, immortalised in Kipling's Road to Mandalay. 28 students are taking part in a constitutional academy, a residential training course run by an intergovernmental pro-democracy organisation. It is funded by the governments of Sweden, Norway, Luxembourg and Finland, some small, rich European democracies doing their bit to support Myanmar's transition to constitutional democracy after decades of military rule. Myanmar, or Burma as it was then known, was once part of the British Empire, part of the chain of countries extending around the Bay of Bengal and across the Andaman Sea from Calcutta down to Singapore and on to Australasia and the South Pacific colonies. Administered separately from British India, Burma was known colloquially as the Scottish Colony. Such was the presence of Scottish merchants in its main port city of Rangoon. The paddles chunking from Rangoon to Mandalay, mentioned in Kipling's poem, were most likely owned by the Irrawaddy Flotilla Company, headquartered in Glasgow. In the Second World War, the country was twice devastated, first by the Japanese invasion and second by its reconquest by British and Allied forces in the Burma campaign. 
The British plan for post-war Burma has been for a staged transition to Dominion status after a 10-year post-war reconstruction programme. On Sang, the Premier of Burma and leader of its governing party, the Anti-Fascist People's Liberation League, was not for waiting. Much of the population was still under arms and willing, if necessary, to take immediate independence by force. The British authorities, their hands forced by the rapidly changing circumstances, agreed to independence by the end of 1947. In February of that year, Aung Sang summoned the representatives of the Shan states and the Chin and Kachin Hill peoples to a conference in Panglong in southern Shan state. There they agreed to unite as one country in order to achieve independence together, on the condition that the internal autonomy of the Shan, Chin and Kachin would be recognised. Burma therefore became independent as a united state, incorporating within its sprawling boundaries both a Burmese majority and a number of culturally distinctive ethnic groups. Not just the Shan, Chin and Kachin, but also the Karen, Mon, Wa, Pao and others. The 1947 Constitution of Burma was a fine example of a typical post-war Westminster model end-of-empire constitution. Much about it was admirable. It failed, however, to give satisfactory effect to the Panglong principles, hindered in no small measure by the vagueness of those principles. In any case, the terms offered to the ethnic groups failed to meet their aspirations and a sustainable federal system was not achieved. Tensions between the Burmese central government and the ethnic states spilled over into an active movement for succession, which was put down by a military coup in 1962, just 15 years of democracy. Despite rebranding and a genuine but limited liberalisation exercise, that military remained in power throughout the following six decades. Burma's pro-democracy leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, the daughter of the Aung San, was under house arrest. Civil war between the Burmese military and armed ethnic groups fighting for their autonomy, or even secession, raged on. The country was cut off from the world. Even the law and political science faculties were closed down after student protests to stop the spread of radicalism. The recent changes in Myanmar are remarkable. Aung San Suu Kyi, no longer a dissident leader under house arrest, became the informal leader of the government in 2015 when her National League for Democracy won the country's first free and fair general elections for generations. All of which takes us back to the Satel conference room. There are seminars on constitutional reform, discussions on democracy, lectures on electoral systems, simulation exercises where participants sit together and try to negotiate a constitutional settlement. The participants are keen and hungry for knowledge. After years of isolation, they want to learn from the world's experiences of democracy. Myanmar is still not fully democratic. The military continue to appoint one quarter of the members of both houses of parliament. Nobody knows when the opening of for, for further constitutional change will come. But people want to be ready. They want to engage. They want to understand so that when the time comes, they will not be hoodwinked or misled. If Myanmar can do this, so can Scotland. It's time for constitutional academies to be rolled out from Wigton to Wick so that people from all walks of life who are active and influential in their communities can come together and learn what it takes to make a democratic constitution so that when the time comes, we are ready. This column welcomes questions from readers. An article by Dr Elliot Bulmer. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The National.